for those of you who are in our adult Bible study this morning, I don't know who needed to hear 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today, but you've heard it now twice. Um, Clark and I did not coordinate that at all, but um, in God's providence, that is a passage that ties together what he taught this morning and what we're going to look at in our worship time this morning. If you have a Bible, open with me to Galatians chapter 1. And we'll look at some more verses that were referenced earlier. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Galatians 1, verses 10 through 12. And we're going to consider the idea of God honoring gospel ministry. God honoring gospel ministry. And as we read in that passage in 1 Thessalonians, all ministry, all work of the believers should be to the end that we walk in a, worthy, in a manner that is worthy of the God who has called us unto salvation. That is the great end of the Christian life, to walk in a manner worthy of God so that we glorify the God who has called us from darkness into his marvelous light. So again, Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And when we consider gospel ministry, you know, as it pertains to the Apostle Paul, um, there, there's a sense in which gospel ministry applies specifically to um, a pastor, or to a church planner, to a missionary, or an evangelist. But we'll talk about this again in, in a few moments, but as, as we see in this text, this idea of gospel ministry applies to every single believer. This is not exclusive to someone called to the office of pastor, or elder, or to the work of missions. Or church planning. This applies to every single soul who is redeemed by Christ. So let's read our text and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will dive into what Paul has to say here through the scriptures. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him now in prayer. Fathers, we come to... This time where, again, we study the truth of your word, I pray, God, that you would please give us humble and open and attentive hearts and minds. Lord, for it is your word that you use by the power of your spirit to sanctify your people. That is, it is your word that you use to cause us to forsake sin and to live in a manner that is pleasing and glorifying to you. So Lord, by the power of your spirit, through, through these next 45 minutes, as we look to your word, I pray that your spirit would work in us, your people, in a mighty way. Lord, there are so many distractions in this day and age. There are so many things going on. We are so busy with so many other things that it would be so easy for us to disengage our minds and take this time to not focus. But Lord, by your spirit, by your grace, 
for the sake of your glory. Please help us to that end, to, to um, take captive our, our minds, not let them wander, but to attentively listen to the truth of your word. Lord, for your word is sure, it is steady, it is eternal. It will never pass away. It is your word that gives life. It is, it is through the proclamation of the gospel that souls may be brought from eternal death to eternal life. So Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive and apply the truth by the working of your spirit for the sake of your glory for all eternity. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul has given his introduction. We've looked at over the the past few weeks. He's given his introduction both of himself, his apostleship, and his authority. He has referenced the common salvation that he knows and shares with these people, the Galatians, the churches in the region of Galatia. And then after that very short introduction, he dove right in. His purpose in writing this letter was so important that Paul didn't give a whole lot of flowery speech. He dove right in to telling the Galatians, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting the gospel. Paul, Paul is writing with a great emphasis, with a great sense of urgency to, to shore up the belief of the Galatians, to ensure that they don't fall into false or untrue doctrine. Now, starting in verse 10, he kind of shifts gears and and he'll remain in this theme that he's about to enter into through the end of chapter 2. He's going to spend an extended period speaking of the gospel fidelity of his ministry. That he proclaimed a true gospel. He's going to correct the falsehoods that were being perpetuated and propagated by the false teachers in Galatia. By those Judaizers who came in and tried to bind the Galatian believers to both the law and the gospel together. And we know, as Paul said, if somebody comes and preaches a different gospel, it is no gospel at all. And that one is to be accursed. That one is to be condemned. We notice that as Paul defends himself and his ministry, he makes no personal attacks. Paul Paul gives no personal anecdotes, no personal stories. He he doesn't give his opinion. He He doesn't string after the emotions of people because Paul's defense of his apostleship, Paul's defense of his ministry is not about himself. Paul's defense of his apostleship and his ministry is ultimately about the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This defense is, is about so much more. It is so much bigger than Paul himself. And that is one thing that we have to realize at the outset, that yes, Paul is going to talk about his life and his ministry, but, but as we go through this next chapter and a half, you'll see that it is all about the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. Rather than maligning these Judaizers, which would make sense to the carnal man, for they came in and spread falsehood about Paul and about the, the God who Paul so diligently gave his life for, that to the carnal man, we would say, yeah, Paul, go get him. Let him have it. 
But Paul doesn't do that. Paul lets his ministry, his character, and his actions speak for themselves. Paul is not interested in talking about his personal life, his personal opinions. He's saying, this is the gospel that is preached. I received it from Christ, and it is true. It is right. It is worthy of you giving and devoting your life to this. For the rest of this chapter and into chapter 2, Paul tells a story that Luke will recount almost exactly in the book of Acts. You know, Luke spends a significant portion in the book of Acts talking about Paul and his life and his conversion and his ministry. And Paul says the exact same thing. There's a, the, they agree completely what Paul reports, what Luke reports. And as I think as we can see from what Paul does here, there is no greater defense against the attacks of the world or even in some cases the attacks of other so-called Christians, other evangelicals. There's no greater defense than the report of a holy life and a faithful ministry. Like Clark talked about earlier, we are called to be stewards of the mysteries of God. There's no greater defense against the attacks of the world than to live a life that is holy and set apart and to be faithful to that which the Lord has called you. MacArthur wrote in his commentary on this passage, he said, one of the primary objectives of the Judaizers who were stirring up so much controversy and confusion in the Galatian churches was to discredit Paul's apostolic authority. That was their goal, to discredit Paul's authority. MacArthur continued, they knew that they could not successfully undermine his teaching of God's gracious gospel until they undermined his divine authority in the eyes of those church members. They knew that there were no holes in the message because the message was true. It was given to Paul directly from Jesus, as we'll see later. And so these Judaizers knew that they had to discredit the man. They had to cause doubt about the man and his divine authority in order to sway those who were trusting in the message that he proclaimed to disbelieve his message. Paul knew that this was the plan. He knew that this was what the Judaizers were going to strive to do. They, he was kind of on the run from these people at every turn as he was on these missionary journeys. He would go and preach the gospel. They would come in and run him out of town. He knew their playbook. He knew what they were going to do. And he knew that to discredit somebody's character or to undermine their authority... In this sense, in the sense of the church and a, and a gospel preacher, to discredit their character or undermine their authority is the first step in tearing down somebody's ministry. If you want to discredit somebody's profession of faith, go attack their character. Cause doubts about somebody's character, and you will be able to tear that person down. That's what these Judaizers were doing. They were coming in and saying untrue things about Paul, so the Galatians would not have confidence in the preaching that, that Paul had done. Again, this is why character and integrity and holiness of life are so important in the life of believers. Because if you go out and preach a Christ who is able to save you from your sin while you live a life of debauchery and sin and evil and wickedness, you render that very message that you have proclaimed completely impotent, completely powerless. Character and integrity matter, not because God cannot use a profession from somebody who lives a debauched life, 
but because we are God's witnesses on this world. We go out and proclaim a message and we undercut and undermine that message if we do not live that message out ourselves. This is also, I think, a primary reason that that scripture makes it so clear that we should be so careful in what we say about others. Because again, when you undercut someone's character, when you, bring, when you falsely bring into question someone's integrity, then their ministry is, is called into question. They, they are undercut and undermined at every turn. And that's why Scripture makes so clear that we must be so careful in how we talk about other people. Because as soon as someone's character and their life and their integrity are brought into question, it's very difficult for people to put those thoughts out. It's very difficult to repair a broken, whether whether rightfully or wrongfully broken, it's very difficult to repair a broken reputation. And that's clear in, in how seriously Paul is taking this, in this letter to the Galatians. So as we look at this, what Paul sets forth really is the basis of God-honoring ministry. The basis of God-honoring ministry. He says that, that ministers of the Lord must be devoted to pleasing Christ alone. That the ministry must be according to the authority of God and that the message proclaimed must be the direct revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the summary of this text. It's the three points we'll look at. So firstly, the devotion of the minister. Verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men... I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now again, when we talk about the gospel minister here, I'm talking about all of us. This doesn't just apply to, to elders or pastors or church planners or missionaries. This is every single believer. Tim Challies wrote of this word minister. He says, minister is not a job title. It is an action. Challies continued, and you minister truth to others by bringing God's word to bear on their life and circumstances. Your title is Christian, but your duty, your job, is to minister the truth. So as we talk about the devotion of the gospel minister here, we could just as easily say the devotion of the Christian. But we're talking about specifically about the work of proclaiming Christ, of ministering God's word, bringing God's word to bear on the life of others. So we're going to use the word minister. So the devotion of the minister. Now, to consider Paul's words here, we must think about this context for a moment. What, what Paul is dealing with, why he is writing, what, what was going on. These Jews, you know, they were accusing Paul essentially of watering down the gospel. For the sake of the Galatians. Now you think that's weird. Who would accuse Paul of watering down the gospel? That doesn't make sense because Paul preached holiness. He preached holiness of life, faith in Christ, and the transformation that comes only with life in Christ. And Paul will go into this in, in more depth later on. But just to, to think about it for a moment. Um, these Judaizers were not rejecting the need for faith in Christ. That's important to understand. They did not come in and say... No, you don't have to have faith in Christ. 
They're saying, yes, have faith in Christ, but that has to be added to your Judaism. That has to be added to your keeping of these ceremonial laws. So they didn't come in and say, no, that's bunk what Paul's preaching. They said, yeah, that's what Paul's preaching, and it's good and right, but it falls short. Paul's watering down the message because he wants to amass to himself a following. He wants to get those who will come in and support him. So he's saying all you need is faith. You don't have to keep the law. That's what the Judaizers were saying. They were accusing Paul uh, of watering down the gospel. They're accusing him of making the gospel more palatable for his hearers so they would come and, and, and approve of him. They said that Paul did not want to speak the hard truth because he wanted the approval of men. So with that in mind, consider Paul's words then. He said, am I seeking the favor of men or of God? And if we were to look at the Greek here and kind of rip this verse out of context, which is not a good practice, so, so I'm going to show you why we don't need to do that. But if we were to look at the Greek here and, and then take verse 10 out of context, we, we see a word that is most often translated as persuade. The, the word favor, am I seeking the favor of men? Most often that is translated persuade. Am I trying to persuade men or God? Well, we'd of course say, if we consider 2 Corinthians 5.11, that our role in evangelism is to persuade men. That's what Paul says. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We take the gospel to men and try to convince them of their need for Christ. But that's ripping this verse, kicking and screaming out of its context to translate that word in that, in that way. Here in this context, this word can also be rendered, and it's very clear here, as seeking favor or making an appeal or even seeking the approval of, of those men, as some other translations would, would render this phrase. So Paul's rhetorical question here is, am I seeking the friendship? and the approval and the favor of men by watering down the gospel? Am I watering down the gospel so that I may win their approval, or am I seeking the favor and approval of God? That is Paul's question here. He continues, or am I striving to please men? Am I aiming for man's approval, man's favor, man's love, man's adulation? Or am I striving to please God? If so, Paul says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, friends, that is a, that, there's so much in that statement to consider how, how trivially we often talk about people being people pleasers or man pleasers. And I understand, I think we fully understand that there are sins that we will battle as believers until the day the Lord calls us home. But hear how clearly Paul says this. If I were still seeking the favor of men, and know all of Paul's context with that, what, what it meant to Paul to seek the favor of men, he said, if I were still seeking the favor of men, if I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant or a slave of Christ. To begin unpacking this, Calvin commented on this idea. He said, When there reigns in our hearts such an ambition that we desire to regulate our discourse so as to obtain the favor of men, our instructions 
cannot be sincere. If there's such an ambition, such a desire in us, in our discourse, in our teaching, in our conversations, to gain the approval of men, John Calvin, the great reformer, says our instructions, if that is our heart, our instructions cannot be sincere. Calvin, I think, rightly applies what, what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said. You know, we might want to couch that in, in some disclaimers and things, but Paul doesn't do any of that. He says, if I'm still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. For the favor of men is not found in the message of Christ. The men of the world love darkness because the men of the world want their sins to be concealed. Those who are of the world hate the light because it exposes their sin. If you want the favor of men, you will preach and teach and encourage and exhort a type of message that does not reveal sin. Because you will not gain the approval of men if you reveal and rebuke and condemn sin as the scripture does. Quite frankly, there is no greater vice, I think, for the Christian, especially one who, whose goal or whose vocation is to preach Christ than to be a slave to man's approval. When you consider that, if that is your chief end, if that is your vocation, and you are a slave to the approval of men, you will be at constant odds within yourself. Because we're called to be stewards. We're called to guard the good deposit of the Word of God. And the good deposit of the Word of God does not win the favor of men. It's the greatest vice that a Christian could know. According to Calvin, if the favor of men is the desire of your heart, your message is insincere. Because you've got this battle raging within yourself. Wisdom then would say that you should constantly be examining your motives and your actions. Because if you have this great battle waging within your soul, within your heart, within your mind, you need to be of utmost diligence to, to guard against that, to, to fight that sin, to cut off that arm of the flesh. Now there's always a balance here that we must remember. We know that the proclamation of the gospel will be an offense or a stumbling block to the lost. So knowing that, let's not be offensive in our proclamation of that truth. We're not called to seek the disapproval of men because we're mean or hateful or impatient. We're called to know that we will not have the favor of men because we preach the truth, because we preach Christ, because we speak the truth, but we do so in love. So there's always that balance. We must, we must know that we will be hated. We must know that there will be no favor of men. But we must work against that while holding and clinging so tightly to the truth. And as I've already said, just, just notice how far Paul goes with that statement. I would not be a slave or a bondservant of Christ. It's just completely incompatible to seek the favor of men, but to preach 
Christ. So are we willing to be as radical as Paul and question and examine our every motive to determine whether we are being man-pleasing or God-pleasing? Because sometimes we can blur those lines depending on the circles in which we run. So are we willing to be radical and say, look, if I'm seeking the approval of this room of people, rather than the approval of God Most High, I'm missing the mark. Are we willing to be that radical to, to, to do that? Are we willing to really say, to really stand on the fact that man-pleasing and God-pleasing are mutually exclusive to one another? That man-pleasing and servanthood to Christ and of Christ cannot be wed together? Again, consider Paul's former way of life. You know, he said he was advancing in Judaism above and beyond all those who were with him. He was on the course to have lots of authority in, in the Jewish life. He, he was probably on, on the path to being, if not already, being a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body of the Jews. He was, he was on his way to being the most respected rabbi uh, of those people. He, he was advanced in his knowledge, his understanding, and his, and his skills of speech. Paul then renounced all the approval all the favor, all the applause of men because his life was wholly given as a slave of Christ. MacArthur writes about this, that by nature, people pleasers are not martyrs. That makes a lot of sense, right? People pleasers are not martyrs. The desire to escape ridicule and trouble is a hallmark of people pleasers. Pleasing men does not bring the severe persecution that Paul endured. And it's totally incompatible with being a bondservant of Christ. So again, you just look at the life of Paul. All that he suffered, that is completely incompatible with the charge that he was seeking the approval of men. Jesus was very clear on this. You know, when he referred to serving God and wealth, something, a principle that can apply very broadly, I believe. But speaking specifically God and wealth, Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Friends, you cannot serve two masters. The devotion of the gospel minister is that we must be devoted to Christ. We must be singularly devoted and focused on our work for the sake and the glory of Christ. You cannot sink together the desire for the approval of men, and the desire to faithfully serve a holy God. I believe outside of pride, I think man-pleasing is one of the most destructive sins the believer can commit. Because man-pleasing undermines and attacks everything you do. Every service you render to Christ, if you are fighting with man-pleasing, your, your desire to please men instead of pleasing God will attack everything you do because again it's not just in the action it's in the motive behind the action so even if you do the right thing but you do it for the wrong reason I look around this room and if I stood up here and proclaimed heresy I would not win the favor of the room so I have to examine my motive to stand up and proclaim the truth to say am I doing that because I want to hear hey great job Jared or do I want to hear at the end of my days, well done, good and faithful servant. 
think in that same vein, we go as far as to say that we cannot seek the approval of fellow believers while striving to be slaves of God. Because the approval of men, whether believers or unbelievers, is in opposition to seeking the approval of God. Now hear this. The approval of fellow believers should come when you are rightly seeking the approval of God. That is how you gain the approval of your fellow believers is that you together are seeking for the approval of God. If we're going in the same direction in seeking the Lord, we will approve of one another. We will have favor with one another. We will love one another and come alongside one another. But very simply stated, we must be devoted to Christ and to Christ alone. And if we do that, we will have the favor of those around us who, who are seeking that same favor of Christ. But most importantly, friends, we'll have the favor of Christ himself. Secondly, then moving to verse 11, as we strive toward God-honoring ministry, we want to consider the authority of ministry, the authority of ministry. Verse 11, Galatians 1, Paul says, For what I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to to man. The Greek term here, no, I would have you know, brethren, is actually a very strong word. You know, that's one of the challenges between Greek and English is we can't always differentiate between these terms. And the term here is, is a strong word. It speaks to a certain or a sure knowledge. It even speaks to, to a knowledge that is certified by external um, people or sources. It's a term Paul used in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 4 when he said that he would speak, he would send um, Tychicus or Tychicus, however you want to say that name, um, that he would send him with those letters and he will make everything known to you. He will certify, he will give himself as a witness to what Paul has written in those letters that are being delivered. He would be a secondary source to affirm what was written. So here in Galatians, Paul is essentially saying, I would have you know that I have witnesses. I have sources. I have those who will confirm exactly what I'm saying about my ministry. I would have you know that this gospel which I preached to you was not according to men, was not from man. He's offering this as a guarantee it is a sure thing. He's being very clear in what he says and how he says it. So then, in this statement, what is Paul so boldly claiming? What is he so boldly stating when he says that the gospel that he preached was not according to man? Other translations would, would um, render this, this is not man's gospel. This gospel is not of human origin. So again, let's be a little bit technical, as technical as I can be in the Greek, which is not very technical. But let's be technical in this term and consider what according to means. It's the Greek word kata, K-A-T-A. And in this context, what the, the lexicons will say is it denotes motion or diffusion or direction from the higher to the lower. So Paul is saying that my gospel that I preached to you was not according 
to men because it couldn't be according to men because man is below God. Paul is saying, my gospel that I preached came from higher to lower, from God to man. Again, consider the, the Jewish people of the day. Consider man's religion and what the Judaizers were propagating. Uh, the man's religion cannot claim such an authority because man's religion is derived from man himself. It goes from one low entity to another low entity. It cannot flow down. It cannot be diffused from higher to lower. The pride of men will infuse itself into this message that they develop. The pride of men will, will be part of the message that they proclaim, but what is clear then in Paul's statement is that there is no pride. There is no error. There, there is no such issue with his gospel because it was not given to him according to men. It was not given to him from man. It came directly from Christ. So let's consider some, some application here. Um, be very, very clear in applying this idea to our lives. God-honoring God gospel ministry can have but one source and one authority. is God's word as revealed by God, as instructed by God. And we will see this in, in verse 13. And God-honoring gospel ministry must have but one authority, God himself. Now what this means is that no man, no, no lived experience, no one's lived experience can have any authority. Say that again. No one's lived experience has any authority. Now, I'll illustrate this for you, hopefully briefly, but in a real-life example. The, the terms empathy and sympathy. Um, those of you who, who keep up with some of the evangelical arguments online know that there was a recent um, kerfluffle over those two terms uh, about, I think, six weeks ago or so. Um, one, one leading apologist went, was so bold as to say that empathy is not a good thing. It is not wise. But sympathy is. He went on to explain it. He wrote blog posts about it and stuff. So you can go look for that yourself. Just Google James White, empathy is a sin. If you want to go read all of that. James White, empathy is a sin. So now to, to figure this all out, how does this work? The Oxford Dictionary defines empathy as the ability to share or understand the feelings of another. To share or understand the feelings of another. That is empathy. Sympathy means to feel pity for someone else's misfortune. Now hopefully you see where those diverge. One is actual misfortune, the other is someone's feelings or emotions. And I'm telling you on the authority of Scripture that someone's feelings and emotions, their lived experience, is not authoritative. That is what Paul is telling us. We are to weep with those who weep. We are to mourn with those who mourn. But we weep with those who are weeping in submission to God's revelation. We don't weep, as James White would say in his blog, we don't weep with the drug dealer who lost his stash of drugs down the drain. We don't weep with a murderer who is put in jail and who is only weeping because he doesn't want to be in jail. We don't give empathy to those things. 
someone's lived experience to say that I've been oppressed because my drugs went down the drain, their lived experience means nothing. We're called to be sympathetic. We're called, as Scripture clearly says, to weep and to mourn with those who weep and mourn, to, to be loving and, and gentle and, and patient and to come alongside and encourage those people. But it has to be in submission to the truth. If someone is mourning because their sins have brought horrible results in their lives, let them mourn in that sin. Don't come and tell them things will get better. Come and say, yeah, that's awful. This is God's just condemnation and God's just consequences for these sins. Why don't you turn to Christ, give your life to him, and then everything will be better. Not because the consequences are gone, but because your eternity is secure. Lived experience is not authoritative. Now, flip side of that, um, we do not want to reject the wisdom and insight of godly brothers and sisters. We, we want to be sure that when we see those who have walked with the Lord, especially those who have walked with the Lord for a long time, but anyone who, who is walking with the Lord, there is wisdom and there is insight that they, they can give us. But that wisdom, that insight does not have priority over God's word. Even someone who has walked with the Lord does not have a lived experience that triumphs the truth of Scripture. What is necessary to understand and to interpret God's Word? There's but one thing. is the Holy Spirit. You don't need to, to have some life experience, some cultural experience to be able to read and understand and apply the Scripture. You need the Spirit of God living inside of you. So what Jesus said in John 16. He said that when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And to you, He will lead and guide you into all truth. So what do you need to, to read and understand and apply the Scripture? You need the Holy Spirit. Paul says that there's but one authority. There's one helper. And there's one message. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the pages of Scripture applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me bring in the final point, verse um, 12, um, into this text and passage. We, we have seen the devotion of the minister, the authority of the ministry, and then lastly we want to consider in verse 12 the source of the message, the source of the message. Paul says, For I, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's consider what does Paul say his message is not? What is not the source of his gospel message? I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it by, by man's opinion or man's interpretation. Again, now think about the attack Paul was under. The Judaizers were were undermining his ministry and bringing his message into question, saying that it was soft and unbiblical and shallow. Paul says, if my message, if my ministry is soft and unbiblical and shallow, then you're calling Jesus soft and unbiblical and shallow because my message is based on the message given directly to me from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that his message is not received from men. It's not something that is passed down through the ages. Again, think about what Judaism was in these days. You had God giving the law, 
several thousand years before this time. And then you had men taking and applying their opinion to this law over years and years and years and years. So really Jewish law at this point was just a huge system that had derived, that men had derived from God's law. Paul said, my message, my ministry is nothing like that. It is what is derived directly from revelation of Jesus Christ. The source of Paul's authority is, was that he proclaimed a message that was not his own. Paul could claim authority over these people because he proclaimed what he received. Think about it. There, there's no greater authority on the message of a person than that person himself. If I were to choose one of you and, and send you to the front to deliver a message to our security worker, would you rather somebody sitting over here in the corner tell you what I want them to tell them? Or would you rather hear directly from me? Paul says, I heard directly from Jesus Christ himself there before my eyes telling me what to proclaim. That is the source and the authority of my message. Paul's life had been lived in opposition to Christ. That had been his whole life's work was to oppose Jesus. Paul knew all of the teachings of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah, yet he had rejected Jesus as the Christ for, for several years after the death and resurrection of Christ. But on that road to Damascus, Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you attacking me and, and my people? And Paul was miraculously converted there. It was the divine revelation of Jesus that opened Paul's blind eyes and overcame his dead and hardened heart. And friends, it is the divine revelation of Jesus Christ that we must proclaim it is the divine revelation of Christ that we must proclaim in hopes of overcoming the power of sin in dead souls. It is the power and, and the veracity of the truth that we must proclaim if we want the Lord to save sinners. Paul was divinely instructed by this manifestation of Jesus. And we too, friends, are divinely instructed by the direct, inspired an authoritative word of God in the 66 books of the Bible. It is that Bible that is the source of our message. It is that Bible that we take and apply in all, of our, in all areas of our lives. It is that message from that Bible that we go out and proclaim in hopes that God will bring dead souls to life. So then, to, to summarize, as we work towards closing... As we consider our calling as ministers of the gospel, as, as being God-honoring gospel ministers, we see that we must be devoted to Christ, we must be submitted to the word, and we must proclaim that word. To be a faithful Christian, to evangelize the lost, and to the disciple the saved, we must have a singular devotion. We must serve only one master. To desire the praise and the applause and the approval of men will cripple a ministry. It will cripple a church. It will cripple an individual believer's walk with the Lord. 
Paul makes it very clear here. If we strive to please men, we cannot be slaves of Christ. There's no ifs. There's no ands. There's no buts. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, before moving off of this, I think we also need to be, be very clear that we also cannot be devoted to pleasing our flesh and then still claim our servanthood to Christ. The flesh will act as a master. You'll be devoted to your flesh or you'll be devoted to serving Christ. We must serve Christ alone. Furthermore, there's no authority by which we order our lives and whatever ministry the Lord entrusts to us other than the authority of God and His Word. There is a real truth and authority in life. It's not personal experience. It's not years of walking with the Lord. It's not even years of, of doing a specific job or task. The only real authority in life is God's written and revealed word. It doesn't matter if you've spent 50 years as a gospel preacher. Your authority is only derived from God's word. Your authority comes only when you proclaim the truth. If you desire true authority and direction in your own life and to be fruitful in your service to the Lord, you must realize and submit yourself fully and wholly to this single truth and authority and instruction. Finally, if we're devoted to Christ and submitted to His Word, that there can only be one proclamation on our lips. That is the proclaiming of the truth of the written and revealed Word of God. God honoring gospel ministry finds its source and its power in the Bible, in the Holy Scriptures, both as it is proclaimed to others and as it is applied in our own lives. If you want to have a powerful gospel ministry, preach the word to others and apply the word in your life. God will bless that. You may not see thousands and thousands of converts, but you will be fruitful as God judges fruitfulness. Do not be fooled and think that you can proclaim God's word with power while you're living a life that resists the truth. Powerful ministry is rooted in, in the word being proclaimed by a person whose life is transformed by that preached word. Now, there's a running theme in all these applications. You must be submitted to Christ to apply these things. You must be in Christ to, to have any type of gospel ministry. If you're not in Christ, you are not a minister of the gospel. You must be born again into Christ to serve him in these ways. You must have faith in him, in his work at the cross, in his resurrection. You must repent of your sins and believe that God is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins, to cleanse you of all righteousness, and then to credit you with an alien righteousness, the righteousness that Christ walked in while he was on this earth. You must be born again to be a minister and a servant of the Most High. So if we do these things, friends, as one who has been born again, one who has been made new in Christ, and one who is empowered by a spirit, we will, as Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy, we will run well. We will endure 
And friends, you will ultimately receive the crown of righteousness. But you must run well. You must endure. You must devote yourself to Christ alone, under the authority of God's word alone, by proclaiming his truth alone. Let's close in prayer.